You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. So the reading for you, if you have the Pew Bibles, is on page 1095. And I will start in chapter 10, and then Marius will take on chapter 11. The Mighty Angel and the Small Scroll. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed. As he announced this to his prophets. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach and it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. Chapter 11, The Two Witnesses. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which, figuratively speaking, is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations 
will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will glow over them and celebrate and sing gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints and to those who fear your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. There were flashes of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and severe hail. This is the word of the Lord. Another uplifting passage from this uplifting book. How are you guys doing? We're about halfway through the book this morning. You're still here. We have a, a monthly meeting with all the ministers, Anglican ministers from around this area, uh, west of Melbourne, and we met earlier this week uh, here at the church. and. So because I was hosting it, they you know, were asking me about stuff that's going on in the parish, and I mentioned that we were teaching through the book of Revelation, and there was sort of this like gasp and some raised eyebrows, like, really? It's a book that we find hard to understand. We've been through this uh, a few times, just acknowledging the fact that it's, it's tricky, um, not just because... It's uh, written in a genre that no one's written for 1,800 years and none of us has been kind of taught how to read, uh, not just because it's full of symbolism and imagery, but I think, uh, particularly coming to this passage, passage this morning, maybe one of the reasons we don't really get it is because we are some of the very few Christians for the last 2,000 years who have it easy 
being Christians. Uh, like, I saw you guys walking this morning, and it was just the most Australian way of turning up to church. Like, just cruising. Just like, just, just cruising into church. Meet someone at the door. How's it going? Not too bad. After the service, if someone says, how was it? You might say, yeah, it's all right. Most people turning up to church today do so under threat. Most of the people who have been Christians through history have experienced some measure of persecution for being Christians. There is some kind of cost involved. For some of it's just low-level background persecution that makes you anxious to be a Christian. For others, it means torture and death. People in those situations love the book of Revelation. Persecuted Christians treasure the book of Revelation. They hang on to it like, a t- like it's tethering them to heaven. I want to show you an image that probably uh, you remember seeing a few years ago. In 2015, uh, I don't know if you remember this, it was when ISIS was doing their thing and uh, you got a picture there, guys, of 21 Coptic Christians being led down to, uh, I think they were in the South Mediterranean, being led by these ISIS fighters. Um, They were from Egypt, uh, working in Syria, just construction workers who got rounded up by ISIS, asked whether they were Christians. When they said, yes, we are, they got marched down to the beach and had their heads cut off. And there was a video made about it. I hope you haven't seen it. I haven't. But this was uh, one of the images released by ISIS as sort of, you know, like promotion material. And um, experts who have looked at these images uh, say that the photo's been doctored to make the men in black, the ISIS fighters, look bigger. They've been enlarged, and the, the orange suited Christians um, made to look little next to them. Coptic Christians love Jesus. If you went to a Coptic service, you would be confused. They worship in a very different way to what we're familiar with, but they love Jesus deeply, and they live in the midst of, very often in the midst of an environment that means that they are very much the minority and that they are often persecuted. And in this case, they were put to death. Apparently, in fact, there are only 20 Coptic Christians who got rounded up and killed. The 21st was a Ghanaian national who, when he saw this happening, these people being rounded up and, and going to be killed, he, he put his hand up and said, my, their God is my God. And he went off to die a horrible death as well. Now, from one perspective, this is an image. The video is, a, is footage of... Uh, one side triumphing over the other. It's a powerful, triumphant warriors putting to death weak, helpless Christians. But what this passage is going to make clear, and in fact the whole book of Revelation makes clear, is actually the reverse is true. Just as Jesus triumphed 
through tragedy. That is, he was killed and then raised to life. So it is with Christians, and that's why persecuted Christians, suffering Christians, love the book of Revelation because it doesn't deny their experience. In fact, it makes it very explicit. Their experience is nothing unforeseen. But it also gives beautiful promises about the final victory of those who suffer and stay faithful to the Lamb who himself was slain and raised to life. So, let's jump in. We'll begin at the beginning of chapter 10, and without reading it, uh, I'll just let you know that verse 1 to 4 is, uh, has, John has this vision of an, of an angel who's immense, uh, rainbows, fiery legs, lions roar. This is, I think this is Jesus. It's not made explicit. It might be an angel. It's identified as an angel, but that's just the Greek word for messenger, so it can, in effect, be a kind of you know, supernatural uh, being, ministering spirit, as Hebrews puts it, or it can just be someone with a message. And in this case, the messenger looks a lot like Jesus to me. It doesn't really change anything about the meaning of the text, but the messenger comes with, in all of his immensity holding the scroll that we've been waiting to open. We've been waiting to see the contents of this scroll for some time now. You remember we've had the seven seals broken, the seven seals that kept the scroll from being revealed, God's will from being enacted. The Lamb was the only one worthy to open the scroll breaking its seals, and then you kind of expect, well, now we'll get to know what's inside the scroll, but instead we've had seven trumpets, well, actually six trumpets, the seventh will come by the end of this message, six trumpets kind of like, like a fanfare, like announcing that the scroll is about to be revealed, and with each of those trumpets came these grievous judgments from God on the earth. And here John throws in something he does from time to time. He puts in this little interlude as we're waiting for the seventh trumpet. He puts in an, an, an interlude with a, a vision about what the church will have to go through before the seventh trumpet is blown and the end comes. We're going to see that today. The seventh trumpet blown, God's kingdom coming to earth. An end to the chaos. So, we've had our seven seals broken, we've had our trumpets announcing the scroll. Last week we did the first six of those trumpets, now we're jumping into this little interlude and a couple of visions that are very, very meaningful again for those Christians who are suffering. So let's read verse 9 and 10. It says, So I went to the angel... And asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. 
So if you've ever read through the book of Ezekiel, you'll see, again, just like, you know, like constantly through the book of Revelation, there are just echoes and echoes and echoes, imagery from the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. And here you've got something very similar to Ezekiel in chapter 3. He, the prophet Ezekiel, eats a scroll and it's as sweet as honey in his mouth. Here, though, John taste sweetness but experience bitterness. The, the scroll, its contents, is bittersweet. The, the scroll that he is to preach and prophesy is bittersweet. That is, it contains things and, and, and um, paints a picture of Christian history that is both bitter and sweet. Again, it makes sense of the experience of the church for the last couple of thousand years they will be both persecuted and killed and they will be vindicated and raised again. And so John eats the scroll. It's a metaphor for, for both reading it and absorbing it and then is given the charge to preach. You must prophesy again, verse 11, about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. Here's how it's going to unfold. This is why it's going to be both bitter and sweet. Look with me, chapter 11, verse 1 to 3. Then I was giving a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. So this is an image of God, God both God's judgment and his preservation. The measuring out of the temple the division between the temple itself and the outside, which will be trampled, the, the temple itself will be preserved. This is a, a, a metaphor for the church. Again, very common New Testament metaphor. The temple no longer uh, has much value as a physical edifice. The temple is now the people of God. Christians are the temple. Christians are the residing place of God's Spirit. Just as he used to reside in the Holy of Holies of the physical edifice of the temple, now he lives in each Christian, each Christian being a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you have the temple here measured out, God's people represented there, preserved, but the outer courts being trampled. The truth is that Christians will be persecuted, Christians will be tortured, Christians will be killed, but God will preserve their status. He will preserve their place as his children, as his redeemed ones. No amount of physical torture, no, no, no amount of uh, authoritative campaigning, no amount of ISIS fighters will ever be able to damage the status of God's people as the redeemed ones. They will be kept safe for eternity. 
And then you read about 42 months and 100, uh, sorry, 1,260 days. And I don't know, when I read any numbers in Revelation, I'm like, oh, I, don't know how to, I don't know what to do with this. But here, actually, it's really clear once you understand the, how the audience would have received that number. Okay, so, so for the Jews, the number of 1,260 days or 42 months is really meaningful. It has great symbolic meaning. Because in, I think it was 168 BC, uh, the, the king of Syria and the Syrian armies came into Jerusalem, they went berserk, they, and for 42 months, for 1,260 days, they occupied Jerusalem. And the king of Syria actually went into the temple itself, into the Holy of Holies, and put up an, a, a, an altar to Zeus on the altar of the Hebrews, and he sacrificed a pig and spread its blood around the very holy of holies of the temple. Great, great blasphemy and insult to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel had to, for 42 months, for 1,260 days, had to deal with this massive persecution and insult, the blasphemy of these Syrians. But what it did was lead to a revolt. The people of Israel revolted and fought back against the Syrians and actually defeated them and reclaimed the city for themselves. So if you're a Hebrew in the first century, you read that number and you think, ah, it's going to be like that. There's going to be a period of time where we are really heavily persecuted, but victory will come in the end. We do this ourselves, by the way. This is not just like a weird ancient thing. We do this all the time. Like if I say to you the number 9-11... You know exactly what I'm referring to, right? I'm referring to a terrorist attack and, I don't know, 3,000 people dead and wars that came out of it and the whole world changed as a result of it. And all I have to do is say 9-11. You know, what is it, 25 years ago, if I had said that, you would have had no idea what I was talking about. But, But numbers gain meaning in the community when certain things happen, particularly tragic things happen. And so it is with this. There is going to be, just like 168 BC, there's going to be a similar act of terrorism perpetrated against God's people, and they're going to have to suffer through it. We get a picture of this, exactly how it's going to unfold, or at least like an image of it that gives us an idea in chapter 11, verse 4 to 6. It says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during their days of prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. So lampstands, we know what they refer to. Going right back to the first week, we know that lampstands are the second week. The lampstands are, are, 
a symbol of the church. So he's talking about not individual prophets here, but the church itself. The church will be given the ministry of prophetic, having a prophetic voice in the midst of all of this darkness and chaos and tragedy. The church will be given the charge of speaking God's words and calling people to repentance just like the prophets of old. And if you've read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll know that those kind of works that he's describing, those works of power, those signs, those miracles that they do are are exactly what Moses did and Elijah did. Water to blood and shutting the sky and all that stuff, right? And I don't think this is uh, meant to be taken literally. I don't think this is going to be the, min- the specific ministry of the church. I think what he's saying is, you remember Moses, you remember Elijah, that's going to be the ministry of the church in the midst of persecution. They're going to be given the ministry of having a prophetic voice. They're going to speak God's words and they're going to do God's works. And this has been the ministry of the church from the beginning. The church has always been called to a ministry of both words and works. Now, you know, in our kind of little tribe here, we, we, I'm, I'm sure we, we have a good handle on the words aspect. We have, a high, we have a great appreciation for words. We've seen the power that God wields through God's words. But we mustn't forget that actually the church has a ministry of works as well. Not just good works done in God's name for the sake of those who live around us, definitely that, but also works of power, signs and wonders. This has always been part of gospel ministry. You might remember the Apostle Paul talking to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, I think it's verse 3 to 5, he says, to them, I, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. What he's saying is, he doesn't come to them like the Greek speakers that they were used to, like the rhetoricians they were used to, who were very polished who are very persuasive. He comes to them in weakness. He's not a great speaker. He's not polished in that way, but he comes with God's words and demonstrations of God's power. And that's the same today. Nothing has changed. The ministry of the gospel always comes with words and works. Part of our role as a church is to pray for God's blessing on both words and works so that those around us, even those opposed to God, might come to see that He is real, that the message is true, and that He is still living and active in this age, even when the church appears to be defeated or diminishing. Weak. Now, you got this church here. They're doing the ministry that they've been given. They're faithful lampstands. They're speaking God's words. They're doing God's works. 
what happens to them. Verse 7 to 10, when they finish their testimony, the beast comes up out of the abyss. He makes war on them. He conquers them. He kills them. Faithfulness is met with tragedy, with horrible death, with unjust destruction. They die and they're dishonored. Verse 8, their bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. They were tormenting them by speaking the truth. Jesus says that All of us in some measure live in darkness and we hate light because it exposes darkness. So it is with these faithful churches speaking the words of God, doing the works of God. They're hated because of it, hated enough that when they're destroyed, they gloated over. They start a holiday in honor of the deaths of these pesky prophets. They give gifts to one another. They celebrate. Death and dishonor is the destiny of the faithful church. This is why the book of Revelation is so treasured by people who are dying unjust deaths for following the Lord Jesus. It makes sense of their experience and it also promises them vindication. Read verse 11 to 14. See how they're vindicated. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Take note. The third woe is coming soon. It does get worse. The point of the passage is that those who have been killed for their faithfulness to the Lamb, just like the Lamb, will experience both death and resurrection. They're vindicated. To be resurrected is to have God's seal of approval put on you. They were faithful. They remained faithful to the Lamb. And this is what we need to understand. We follow a crucified saviour. Just think about that logically. 
To follow someone is to walk in their footsteps. It's to emulate them. It's to live like they lived. That includes not just reaching out to marginalized people and loving the unlovable. It doesn't just mean doing great works of signs and wonders and speaking God's words, all of these things Jesus did. But we need to remember he was also killed. He suffered an excruciating death and then was raised to new life. To follow Jesus means to follow him to death. For some of us, for most of us in this room, that'll be a small but significant dying to ourselves, dying to our sin every day. Jesus said you must daily take up your cross and follow me. But for others of us, maybe even some in this room, it may mean torturous death. We ran an internship program here for a little while. Jimmy ran it and had a, a bunch of you know, kids out of, oh, that sounds patronizing, um, young adults out of um, high school come and work for the church and learn a whole lot of theology and you know, biblical studies and stuff. And it was fun. It was fun. It was actually just one of the the best times of the week. It was just fun to sit around and chat and discuss theology and talk about church. And At the same time, I heard of a similar internship program that they were running in, a church was running in China, and on the intake form for the, for the internship program, for these 17 and 18-year-old kids, there was like a little checkbox that said, you know, check this if you're willing to die for your faith this year. The way of Jesus is the way of both death and resurrection. So we come finally to the seventh trumpet. This is verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The end. That's how it ends. Christians everywhere, both who have died and those who will be living at the time, will be at that seventh trumpet, raised again. A voice from the cloud will say, come up here, They'll experience resurrection because they remain faithful to the Lamb that was slain. And God Himself will bring His kingdom to the earth. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He'll reign forever and ever. No more beasts, no more dragons, no more death, no more destruction. And yet, we're only halfway through the book. So again, Revelation, don't read it like a linear timeline. That's not how it works. John, through his visions, will see up to a point and then go back and then up to a point and then go back and jumping around all over the place. So we're going to get back into all kinds of chaos by next week. 
There'll be dragons and harlots and seven bowls of judgment and all kinds of stuff's going to happen before finally we get to Revelation 22 and that really is the end of ends. But in the meantime, I want us, and I, and I, I think this right at the middle of the book in that very hinge of the book, I think it's a, just like a little taste of what's yet to come, a little encouragement along the way reminding us who wins. This is not one of those books where we're on the edge of our seat wondering who's going you know, to triumph in the end. It's been clear from the beginning Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I want us to participate in a little kind of prayer of victory together, even though we're going to be jumping back into all kinds of chaos. Let's just savor for a moment the vision that we'll have at the end. And it's a vision given to us here after the seventh trumpet sounds, the the people of God have this kind of collective moment of corporate worship and liturgy where they praise God for his final victory. And so I'm going to ask you now to stand up and we're going to say this as a, a kind of liturgy of victory. It's easy in this world to see men in black beheading men in orange and to think that the way of the world is the way of victory. It's easy for the church, and we have over the years resorted to worldly ideas of triumph, to exert power, military power, political power, financial power, and to think that that is the way of Jesus. And we're wrong. We've always been wrong. The way of Jesus is death and resurrection. Tragedy turns to triumph. And that's what this liturgy is all about. It's just taken from verse 15 to 18, and so I'd like you, as always, to join in bold. We give you thanks, Lord God the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged, and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Thank you that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Please take a seat. We're going to take some time now to reflect on what we've heard this morning, perhaps what you've been gleaning throughout this series cumulatively. Uh, perhaps you want to pray at this time, especially for those who are being put to death, who are being persecuted, that they will remain faithful to the Lamb and receive their vindication. So uh, we're just going to enjoy some music now. Please take some time to reflect and to pray.
shadows deepen. We do. You know that all the dark will stop the light from getting through. We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Kingdom and priest of God to reign with the sun. 